How can you, Christian, have a lasting impact on the world? It's a fun question to entertain, as we should all be wanting to have a lasting impact on the world. Maybe, hearing such a question, you are already thinking, well, if I am to be used of God to transform society and have this lasting impact, I therefore need a career, a position of influence in certain institutions, industries, whether it be business, sports, politics, the arts, etc., etc. But while some elements of this thinking certainly can be good, the Bible actually doesn't frame the question in the discussion like that. Having a lasting impact is less about what career you have and more about Christ-like character and conduct in no matter the career you have. And in our passage today, we see that if you, Christian, want to have a lasting impact on the world around you for Jesus Christ, then you have to let your Christ-likeness shine. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in verses 11 to 17 as we walk through the book of 1 Peter. Consistently, certainly slowly, but definitely consistently, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. And if you're taking notes, which of course I encourage you to do, here's the big idea. Christian, if you want to have an impact on the world around you for Christ, let your Christ-likeness shine. If you want to have an impact on the world around you for Jesus Christ, then let your Christ-likeness shine. And if you're taking notes, we got two points here. First, the mission, and secondly, the battlefront. First, the mission. Secondly, the battlefront. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. I'll go ahead and read that now. And we see that here Peter's starting a new section. We have this phrase here, beloved, oftentimes the indication that he is, in fact, starting a new section. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor. Point number one, we look at the mission, the mission which is to impact the world for Jesus Christ. The mission to impact the world for Jesus Christ. And here by impacting the world, what I really mean is by doing good in the most lasting way, addressing the world's most urgent need. There's a thousand ways in which we could, million ways in which we could do good. And that good might be let's say, be temporary. So for example, if we're doing good and all we want to see is people, uh, let's say, live better here on earth. Well, friends, that's just temporary here. What what I'm referring to is doing good in the most lasting way, addressing the world's most urgent need. Look there, verse 11. I'll repeat these verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visitation. So there you see the mission or the command there in verse 11, abstain from the sinful passions. 
This is just carnal passions, whether it be anger or greed or sexual immorality, the temptation towards such. He says there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There he's talking about spiritual Gentiles. If you're visiting with us, Gentiles and Jew, those were the two categories that, the, that oftentimes God's people operated with. But he's not thinking about ethnic Israelites. He's not thinking about ethnic Gentiles here as the church is both Jew and Gentile. He's thinking about those who don't believe. They are spiritual Gentiles. So he tells the Christians there, keep your conduct honorable amongst the world because you are my spiritual people. And you see there the goal of the mission. We're just trying to understand the passage. There's meaning in the passage itself. You see there it's so that the ultimate purpose, they, the world, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As I understand this, this is the return of Christ. How is it that they glorify God? They become Christians themselves and they glorify God on His day of visitation because they believe. Here what's going on, if you've been with us in the book of 1 Peter, Peter continues the theme of holiness for God's people, which he brought up earlier in chapter 1 saying, be holy for I am holy. That is what God says in the Old Testament to His people. That's what God says to His New Testament people. And just as the Father is holy, so His children, those He begets in Jesus Christ, are to be holy, reflect His character. They bear His name. And so we Christians are to shine. This was the case for Old Testament Israel. They were to display His character around the nations. And so it is with the God's New Testament people, the church of Jesus Christ. You look there at 2.9. Look there at 2.9. Peter says there, but you are a chosen race. Race there that just means people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His, that is God's own possession. Don't think demonic possession. Think God gathering His people to Himself so that they would be set apart for Him and His glory as He works in and through them. This would have been a huge encouragement. When the holy God possesses a people, He possesses them, gathers them to Himself that they might be holy and righteous like He is all by the power of His Spirit in Christ. This is what happens really when one becomes a Christian. So if you're visiting with us, don't think that when one becomes a Christian, one simply embraces a new way of life or a new philosophy or a new way of living. While we certainly do do that, that is not primarily what happens when one becomes a Christian. In becoming a Christian, one shows us, God Himself shows us our very own need for Him. As God has created us to be in a relationship with Him, we, the Bible says, has sinned against Him. We have cut off that relationship because of ourselves, because of our own sin and rebellion, the Bible says. God said, here, Adam and Eve, this is what I want you to do. We're going to live in a wonderful, loving relationship. Got to live within my boundaries, in my world, breathing the air that I provide, enjoying everything that I give you. But Adam and Eve say, we don't care. We're going to do what we want to do. And so... The Bible says that man sins against God. But now what happens when someone becomes a Christian, right? That's the question. That's what we're thinking about. God opens their eyes and their hearts to see their own sin and their own need of God Himself. And in God's kindness and His love and His compassion and His mercy, if you think of what a biblical, robust understanding of mercy, what is that according to the Bible? It's not just that God doesn't give us what we deserve. It's that God in His compassion and mercy draws near to help those who are in need. Namely, because of their sin. We dug ourselves into the pit and so God Himself reaches down in Christ the Son, His eternal Son, and He lifts us out of the pit. 
He opens our eyes. We see our need of our own sin and rebellion. We see God himself, so to speak, according to his word. And we turn from our sins and we believe. And we see all of this. We see God's love and his mercy in Jesus Christ. Christ, the son, eternal son, takes on flesh, lives the righteous life we should have, dies the death we ourselves had earned because of our own sin. Three days later, he gets up from the grave showing now all those who repent of their sins and believe no longer have a death sentence over us. Instead, we can know God ourselves as we look to Christ and see his love and his mercy. That's what happens when one becomes a Christian. God changes our desires. He gives us a new heart, puts a new spirit inside of us. We're certainly not perfect, but we begin to have these new desires. So friend, if you're visiting again, and maybe you think you've become a Christian, explore those new desires. Why is it that now you're beginning to be really uncomfortable with the ways in which you once were happy living? And now all of a sudden you may want to live a different way. Turn away from your sin. Maybe stop stealing and then be honest. Or maybe refuse sexual immorality, but then pursue biblical morality. And why is it? It's because you know, perhaps, coming to know, this grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is what happens when God possesses a people for Himself. And so we have the indwelling Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ living in us, where we become more Christ-like. Friends, if you want to know more about this gospel, I invite you to talk to me, talk to Pastor Rocky. We'll be standing in the back of the door. Uh, afterwards, if you need prayer, there's going to be people over there who are very happy to pray for, pray for you, the prayer team. They'd be happy to answer your questions about what this gospel is, as the Bible calls us to turn from our sins and believe, and you will be forgiven. That's a promise, and God fulfills all of His promises according to His faithfulness. So friends, that's what happens when one becomes a Christian. When God gathers His people to Himself, we become a royal priesthood, so ambassadors on behalf of God to the world. We become a holy nation, a people, a people for His own possession. And what is it that God wants us to do? He wants us to shine. He wants us to shine. Here, Peter's just echoing what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 16. He says there, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Peter here is just quoting Jesus. This was incredibly relevant for the folks, these Christians in the first century. And friends, this is very relevant for us today. Remember, right, these Christians were facing persecution by those around them. Some were being beaten. If you read the letter, that's clear. Some were being mocked for the faith. They were being shunned for the faith, for following Jesus, and for walking in Christ's likeness. And it was before them, their persecutors, that they were to let their Christ likeness shine. Exactly what Christ did. What an encouragement to be reminded, right? If we are that church, imagine, or if you're suffering for your faith now, what an encouragement to be reminded that, yes, we may be shunned by our very own people and our very own blood. But who is it that has welcomed you and saved you and taken you to be God's very own possession? It is God Himself. Though they are exiles, you see that there in verse 11, though they are exiles and sojourners wandering in this desert land, so to speak, though we wander in this world as this world is not our home, we nevertheless still possess full status as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom where Christ is the king, where he moves and works out all of his purposes and where he even guards you, Christian, all the way until the end. And we see that in 1 Peter 1, verse 5. 
So with that encouragement, with the hope of salvation, we therefore await the return of Jesus. And as we await, no matter the circumstance, no matter the difficulties that might come, we have the opportunity, look there in verse 9, 2, 9, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So Christian, this is how we testify, right? As we exile from this land to the next, it is through proclamation as we declare and testify that Christ is the Lord and Savior, but it's also through your Christian conduct. And this is what Peter leans into for the next couple chapters, all the way to 4.11. And we are helped to know how is it that we are to interact with the world around us as we navigate the challenges of being in this world, but not of the world. Evergreen, you realize that there is great power in your born-again life. Your conduct is evidence that you really believe and that God has actually worked in your hearts. Your conduct is evidence that you believe what you confess and profess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord who saves us from our sins and we therefore are turning away from our sins because Christ is better than the way in which we used to live. And friends, if you are a Christian, Christ wants you, us as evergreen, to shine forth His character both in what you proclaim and in how we live. The question is, do you? How do you? You know what I think is uh, one of the greatest hindrances to living boldly for Jesus? It is what in Scripture is called the fear of man. The fear of man. And these Christians certainly had reason to fear man. You go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter 4, 4 uh, 3-4. 4, 3 to 4, it says, Therefore, the time that, ha- that is past, in other words, their old life, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that is, living in sin, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the sl- same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. That's, that's certainly would, would create the circumstance where they would be tempted to fear man. I mean, keep in mind, right, this is probably some of their own family. This is probably some of their own friends. This is probably those who employed them. It is all eyes on them. They want them to join in in the same flood of debauchery, but they are saying, no, this is enough. And certainly we can imagine that they were part of that same debauchery and then in becoming Christian, then they're learning to turn away. So the very friends that they used to party with most likely are the very same friends that they're saying no to. It is all eyes on them. Right In these types of moments where we struggle with the fear of man, people are big in our eyes. They are a very great consequence to us. They are very consequential. And then God is small. It's very inconsequential. Do you struggle with a fear of man? Some diagnostic questions for you to examine your own lives. Maybe you have never actually shared the gospel with your loved ones. Have you? This goes far beyond inviting somebody to church. I'm talking about really sharing the gospel because it is such good news that you want your friends to know it. Maybe you find yourselves shrinking from opportunities to tell your friends and family about Jesus. The opportunity comes up. Maybe somebody's discussing God 
or morality or something that touches upon something in the Bible and yet you shrink from opportunities. Maybe you feel embarrassed about Christ, His truth, and the ways in which He wants you to live and shine. There could be so many different reasons why we fear man. Maybe our heart's desires is to be liked by everyone around us. Or forget that. Maybe it's not even to be liked. Maybe it's just never to be rejected. Or maybe it has to do with earthly security. Like, you know, your boss might blacklist you if he or she knows that you are a Christian. And so maybe that means you can't get that raise, etc., etc. So many different reasons. The good news, friends, is that here, as we read 1 Peter, we are in good company in terms of one who has struggled with the fear of man, but then who turned from it. Peter was a man-fearer. I've brought this up previously, but at the crucifixion, he crumbled when the little servant girl's eyes fell on him. And when he was outed by her words, you also were with the Galilean. That happens again. Another servant girl does the same thing, and yet he crumbles three times. He denies the Lord and Savior. I do not know the man. In that people, in that moment there, people loomed large in Peter's mind. Not the Lord. Jesus was inconsequential. Is that like you sometimes? But you know what? Thank God, God Himself changes people. By the time of this writing, when he's writing this letter, mid-60s A.D., he is a changed man. Though he clearly had abandoned Jesus at the cross, Christ never abandoned him. How awesome is that for man-fearers, right? Instead, Jesus reinstates Peter to the ministry at the end of John. Jesus fills him with the Spirit, gives him boldness, and he grows in grace. All of that is the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Peter there is declaring boldly for Christ. And he freely chooses to suffer for the faith. What a transformation. Before, when all eyes were on him, he shrinks from the opportunity. He runs away. But here, Peter thinks, it seems, all eyes on you, Christian, is the perfect place to be. Is having all eyes on you great? I think, I think Peter would say yes. reason why is because it is then right at that moment that we have an even greater opportunity with all eyes on us to herald our confession, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, that He is Lord. And that it is in that moment that our conduct as God's holy people, displaying His glory to the world, can be observed all the more. And in those moments, we get to explain it all the more. It's the perfect place to be because the Christian who is confident in Jesus, of course, because of what Christ has done for them, that Christian will be less concerned about being exposed to be a Christian by the world, but more concerned with proclaiming and displaying Christ to the world. So friends, where are you? Where are you on this journey against the fear of man and having God remain big in your eyes and people really to be small in some respects? And of course, when we fear man, when all eyes are on us, it's then we shut up. I know what this is like. We forget proclamation. And we will certainly will shut down. For We forget. We say, never mind to living differently in the world. We just want to fit in and not be rejected. But again, it's when we are confident and convicted about all that Christ has done for us by His grace and all that He has won for us in salvation, which is recapped in First Peter chapter 1. 
then we proclaim him and we live changed lives in front of the world for him and in him it is then that we walk in the same footsteps of jesus so that other people would come to know christ for themselves you remember the goal there look at verse 12 so that purpose statement when they speak against you as evildoers so here they're laying claims all oh, you christians are this and this way and that way they actually may see your good deeds realize they're wrong that's the implication and come to know jesus themselves glorify god on the day of visitation christian god intends to use your christian conduct to testify to his beauties and his power to save Every gospel-believing church comprised of true, born-again Christians. That's what Peter calls it. It's a biblical term. I know some of my Roman Catholic friends growing up, they would sort of talk uh, uh, dismissively about being born again. That's just in the Bible. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. You can look it up. Here, Christians and churches are to project to the world around them the excellencies of God in word and deed. Christians, you got to know that the world takes notice of you. And that is a good thing. You are strange to non-Christians. And that is good. The way that it has worked in my life, and maybe yours too, probably yours too, is that your friends begin to take notice of just how weird you are. And your thoughtful ones will start asking questions. Sure, you might be dismissed immediately by some, but your thoughtful ones, the ones who love you, they will ask questions. One friend, <clears throat> Christian friend, told me that he and his girlfriend decided not to kiss while they were dating because they knew that if they did, their desires for sex would be too powerful as they both were non-Christians in the past and they became Christians. They knew, according to Song of Solomon, that it is dangerous to, quote, awaken love too early. Song of Songs 8.4. That's weird. What's normal in this culture, of course, is to give sex a test drive before actually committing to give oneself to marriage. Staying away from sex and everything that leads up to it is certainly strange to the world. And you are weird. Your friends who are not Christians will look at you like you are E.T. And your thoughtful ones will ask, why do you do that? They might say, why in the world would you do that? But it's in those moments that you have the opportunity to explain a biblical worldview Oh yeah, I know you guys think it's weird. And trust me, I want to, I want to. I know, but here's the deal, right? God has created me and all human beings to enjoy sexual intimacy. He's the maker of our bodies. Our bodies are designed to enjoy sex. Sex is not bad, but here's the deal. We are to enjoy it within God's boundaries. The boundaries of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And we are not to go on and take advantage of others and to enjoy these blessings outside of the marriage covenant you can you can freely admit yes of course i want to have sex you know that's what my body's designed for we can't wait till we get married but that's going to come eventually and not right now that's just one example right you got to explain that to them your friends will be like what this is so weird but okay let's keep on talking or here's another one. Let's say your friends know that you've become a Christian now and you want to refrain from pornography. You can explain to them that you are learning how to love God's created people in the way that God wants them loved. You could say, but you know, before you used to use God's created people to fulfill your own carnality. But now in becoming a Christian and having Christ's spirit within you, you're learning to love other people, God's created people, in the way that God designed. They are people made in the image of God designed to display His glory to the world, 
designed to worship him and not designed to made to be worshipped by other people or made to worship the viewer. Or let's say you used to gossip a ton, but now you become a Christian and you want to use your speech now to build others up. Ephesians 4.29. And all your friends that you might gossip with at the water cooler might say, you are weird. In those moments, right, in all of these different moments, you could seize the opportunities. You can even create moments to explain why it is that you are compelled by God to live different in the way that you used to or even the way that you are currently tempted to. And you do so testifying to the power of your holy Christ, your loving Christ, who has shown us the meaning of life according to his word and as he teaches us to live for him. Why in the world, right? As I, as I, I apply this to myself. Why in the world would I ever feel embarrassed about the very work of my holy God in me, transforming me into the image of my very Savior? cultivating in me, no matter how small, a desire to be holy like him. Why in the world would we feel embarrassed about that and about God who is Lord of all? Christian, remember, God intends to use your Christ-like character and conduct to witness to his good character so that some, by his will, by his grace, would come to confess Christ themselves and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is what Peter leans into here, living out Christ-likeness, in front of other people so that they would glorify God. So then, church, let us do the same and lean into living out Christ-likeness and explaining as well, explaining, not just living, but actually explaining to your friends and your loved ones why it is that you do what you do. So to recap, the mission is abstain from the passions of the flesh, keeping our conduct among everyone, the world, honorable. And the goal is to see others one for Christ. But again here, Peter addresses the various battlefronts that these Christians were probably having particular challenges. And this brings us to point number two, the battlefront. Point number two, the battlefront. And here, the battlefront is under the authority of the government, under the authority of the government. The first battlefront um, he addresses is our interactions and our submission to those in authority over us in terms of authority. Again, perhaps these Christians in these very areas were struggling to be godly towards the government, so Peter wants them to shine in front of their eyes. Um, Actually, if we think about just the structure of the letter itself, Peter addresses a number of different battlefronts, which we're going to look at in the future, but here we're going to look specifically at authority under under the government. But if you look there at 13 to 17, he addresses Christian citizens under the authority of the government. 18 to 25, you look there. He addresses Christian slaves under unjust masters. And then in 3, 1 to 7, he addresses Christian wives under the authority of their husbands, particularly non-Christian husbands. And what he's doing here is he's using a structure that that was frequently used even a few hundred years before Peter wrote called the household code, the household code where he simply addresses the one under authority, the one in authority, under authority, in authority, under authority, in authority. So here he's just going about this in a typical fashion. And we're going to be, again, looking at that in future weeks. But today we look at the battlefront of Christians under government. Look at 13. Be subject, he says, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You look there at 13 and 15, what a Christian is called to do. Be subject, he says, to every human institution. Verse 15, doing good. We don't really know why he actually went at, brought this up addressing the emperor as supreme and submitting to him or to his governors. Perhaps tensions between the Roman government and the Christians, it was ramping up, persecution maybe. But nevertheless, he simply calls Christians to shine in this realm of living underneath government authorities. The Bible has much to say about governing authorities and Christians, the Christians' interaction to it. Uh, and we got three here underneath point two, if you're taking notes. First, the Bible says... Um, that authority is God-given. God-given. God-determined, really. In Daniel 2.21, it is God himself who places rulers in authority, and it is God himself who brings them down. Paul says in Romans 13, there is no authority except from God. Therefore, Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That's Romans 13.1. There's a whole lot we could say about that. But uh, we're sort of dipping our toes into that. That's number one. The Bible says authority is God-given. Second, in terms of the role of the government, in terms of the role of the government, according to the biblical worldview, earthly government has not been instated by God to define what is good and bad. That's not what the government is here for. Rather, the government is to uphold the government is to uphold what God has already determined to be good, and they are to punish those who do evil. Now, insofar as the government upholds the purposes of God, then the more the government is, as Paul says, a servant for your good in Romans 13, 4. Peter's aim is that these Christians in the midst of suffering be good citizens insofar as they are able. It's a positive witness, right? He wants them to shine in front of those who are in authority over them. And here we have to remember that Peter is saying this about the Christian government who crucified the Lord. Very fascinating. Paul takes the same posture towards the government, towards Rome in Romans chapter 13. He knows that they just killed Jesus, and yet he is able to say that they are a servant of good. Of course, he's not thinking 100% of the time. It might not be all the time. They might not uphold what God wants all the time. It might not even be most of the time. But humanity is better with government than without. And it's very hard to disagree, you know, that without some form of government, there would be total anarchy. Bad. But as we try and understand the submission, right, as we here try and understand the submission to government, it's important to note, thirdly, thirdly, our submission is not unconditional. Your submission to the government is not unconditional. But it should be in everything possible. Not unconditional, but everything possible. For example, if the government requires us as Christians to sin, Christians are to side with Christ the King over any earthly kingdom. Sinning against God is not shining the light of the gospel in Christ. That is not commending His rule. And there are plenty of examples in the Bible of folks who, Christians, who disobeyed the governing authorities for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's be clear about this, right? Take Peter himself. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was arrested by the authorities for preaching the gospel, and the authorities charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
And you don't see him say, yes, that's absolutely right, Rome. You are the, the, the highest, greatest authority, and I'm going to listen to you because there's nobody else above you. Even though you're the largest empire in the world, you are the man. There's nobody else above you. That's not what he says. Acts chapter 419, it says here, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen or heard. He basically says, look, you guys decide for yourselves because it's on you whether or not you want to go against Yahweh, the great Lord and Savior. But we will continue following the Lord and speaking about what we have seen and heard for ourselves. Think about the Old Testament. You think about the Hebrew midwives. Awesome, godly women here in the book of Exodus. The Pharaoh at the time was was threatened by all the Hebrew people living in their land thinking that they might one day rise up and then overthrow him. So what does he do? He enslaves them. And and to exercise population control or basically a genocide, he decreed that all the Hebrew baby boys be killed and thrown into the river. He even commanded the Hebrew midwives who helped deliver the babies to kill them. And what do the midwives do? They disobeyed the earthly king because they knew they had to obey God. Exodus 1.17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. We can think of Daniel as well in the Old Testament. We can think of more examples. So let's be clear. Christian submission to authorities is not to be unconditional, but it should be in everything possible for the Lord. We are not servants of the government. We are, look there at verse 16, look there. Reason why we should live this way in submission is because we are servants of God. But we can still appreciate our earthly leaders, right? We can still seek to obey them. But let's be clear, ultimate allegiance for the Christian goes only to the true sovereign, Jesus Christ. But if, you know, if you're visiting, you're checking out Evergreen, maybe you work for the government... Uh, let me just assure you, Christians are not anarchists. Christians are not anarchists. I can imagine some might read verse 16, go ahead and look there. Peter calls us to live as people who are free. And then some people might be tempted to think, well, are you saying that Christians can do whatever we want, including burn it all down if we want? That is not the case. Christians are not anarchists. Though we are indeed free people, the biblical concept of Christian freedom means we are free to do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. We are not slaves to sin. Instead, we are free to the Lord. We are not slaves to this temporary world, but instead we live freely knowing that there is eternal life, even laying down our very lives. We are not slaves to the government because we are free to live under the King. And our King is the one who calls us to live according to His Word, submitting to government authorities. According to Christ's authorities, we are called to be subject to every human authority based on His authority. His authority, not their authority, but His authority because He is the one who has placed them in authority. So we are not anarchists who use such claims of freedom as a cover-up for evil. With Christ our King, we are free from slavery to anything here on earth. And our King has called us to submit. Again, we have the aim, right? We are to have the aim to submit in everything possible, not because the government gets it right every time, not because they always act in the wisest possible way. We seek to obey there in verse 13 for the Lord's sake. 
This is what the Bible teaches, and many churches have a statement in their statement of faith that addresses this very thing. Here's a statement called on civil government. It's from from one of the most widely used statements of faith in the English-speaking world, particularly the Baptist-speaking world. Uh, And this comes from 1833 the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Really, and if, for our denomination, for other Baptist denominations, this really here is uh, the statement of faith used most widely in Baptist circles. This is what it says. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society and that magistrates are to be prayed for, which Pastor Ron did, conscientiously honored and obeyed. So you see there, the first gear should be to respect and submit to authorities. But again, there's a limit to submission to the government. The statement of faith goes on to say, they, that is the authorities, are to be conscientiously obeyed and honored, except, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. There are limits to our submission to government because of who Christ is. He is the one who reigns, and it is His will that is supreme every single time. And as Christians, it is His will that our consciences are bound to. That's what it talks about when it says that He is the Lord of the conscience. If He issues a decree, we, our consciences, are bound to Him and to Him alone. And so if the government is somehow opposed to something that God is for, we're going with God, friends. And even if those governments... And even those governments, we have to remember, will be held accountable to Him for whether they uphold what is truly good and whether they uphold His righteousness. Okay, so let's think practically here. So when are we free to disobey? When are we free to disobey? Certainly with respect and, 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 and seeking peace and prayerfully, when are we to disobey? The answer is, number one, if the government requires what God condemns if the government requires what God condemns, right? So just imagine, if the government somehow demands that we sin against God or others, we cannot comply, we stand with God. So let's say the government said that it was mandatory that we as a church now had to perform homosexual unions. And they said that if to to not do that was illegal, we're standing with God and we're going to face the consequences. Second, second uh, boundary here, if the government condemns what God positively requires. If the government condemns what God positively requires. There, Christians stand with God. So let's say the government told us we could no longer preach the gospel. And he has commanded us certainly to preach the gospel. Well, what are we going to do? We say with Peter and the apostles, you judge for yourselves whether or not you want to stand against the great almighty Yahweh. We're going with God. This is incredibly relevant to Christians. Just think about the COVID lockdown and how much godly truth and wisdom was needed as so many churches, including this church and my old church, had to navigate the shutdown, right? How is it that we think about this? Well, we know that God commands us, calls us to gather for worship, right? Hebrews uh, says that we are to not forsake the gathering of ourselves. But we know at the same time that the government has ordered us to stay home, So what do we do? What do we do practically here, right? What we do not want to do is slavishly do what the government tells us to do. 
What we do not want to do is slavishly do what the government tells us to do. It's not that Christians are anti-government. It's just that we answer to the one and only true sovereign. So if you guys can reach back to the silly example of painting the church pink. Do you guys remember that? The one that Rocky suggested we do, which he did not. That's a joke. Here we're kinda, we have another example here. How do we think about certain things? If God commands us to do one thing, the government says we should not do one thing. How do we think about that? We should take what the government says and then consider, consider, number one, what does God have to say about the issue according to His Word? What does the Bible have to say about this issue according to His Word? So is it sin? Is it not sin? Is it sin? Is it not sin? Second, let's assume if it is not sin, right? Because if it is sin, well, we're standing with God. Based on what the Word says and the Word's implications... What then is the best course of godly wisdom? What's the best course of godly wisdom? And then third, what does church practice and church history have to say about this? Fourth, how does my church and my pastors want us to live in such wisdom and then navigate the issue? Right? And then if it isn't a sin category, then we're just talking wisdom. And if we are in the wisdom category, then we ought, right, to aim to submit to our leaders, to our parents, to the government, for the Lord's sake. And obviously with COVID, there was a, there was a whole bunch of different responses, right? You had fo- some folks, you know, really across the nation who were like, okay, the government has issued this. We're going to decide in our own wisdom to shut down. And the wiser churches says, we're going to shut down, not because you say we should, but we're going to shut down because you've presented some godly wisdom and then that's, that's worthy of us thinking about. We will go along with it, not because you say we should, because we see there is wisdom. And this happens regularly. You know, you can think of, let's say, a snowstorm. That you gotta, uh, it's dangerous to go to church. Some churches decide to go ahead and, and cancel their gatherings because it's dangerous to get there. In my mind, that's what happened when COVID came out. You had to navigate this. Our church at First Baptist Church, we shut down, though we offered teaching online. Same with uh, John MacArthur's church. They did, in fact, shut down for a time. This church shut down for a time. You know, a lot of churches are doing the exact same thing, but we're doing it not because they tell us to, but because you say, yeah, okay, we recognize that there is some wisdom here. Are we free to? Then we look at church history, right? It's not a sin issue, uh, although eventually it can certainly become one. But then we look at church history. Is there a practice of churches shutting down for the sake of the benefit of the public in light of certain plagues and things like that? Yes, there is. Okay. So it's within the realm of reason, within the realm of wisdom that at certain times, yes, it is okay to do such things. But we also see in church history that it is also wise to continue with gathering at a certain point in time. And that's what many churches did. Churches in our own backyard decided at a certain point in time, it is time to sue the government. We are gathering because God says it is. And the courts now are ruling in favor with those churches that that went against their freedoms. Uh, Another church that did shut down and shut down for a long time. They too, at the same time, were suing the government. Uh, And that was a course of godly wisdom. And then eventually they continued to gather. So man, for this church, we got to think wisely if ever some sort of some sort of government issued ordinance comes towards us, we got to think, okay, well, what does the Bible say? What does he command? And then how do we best obey it 
in light of his commands and in light of those implications, all for the Lord's sake. As we think about the big picture of our government, or we're moving towards a conclusion here, as we think about a big picture for our government, I guess I, I get how this could be a little nerve-wracking for some in terms of what might come down from the government, in terms of new laws and policies. And so it was for these Christians, I think, a bit nerve-wracking. They were again being persecuted for their faith. That's where we have to remember that their choosing to submit and our choosing to submit is ultimately a choosing to honor and trust the Lord. Though certainly a degree of confusion is to come from any government and maybe even great opposition against Christians and the things of God, we never need to despair. We never need to despair. And even when that political party that you might so happen to like is in power, we never need to celebrate as if our final hope is in that political party. We would just be joking with ourselves, right? Because it is the Lord who reigns. Our final hope is in Him. We honor the Lord and we live for Him knowing that He is true, that this world is not our home, and that because Christ is sovereign King, He will settle accounts according to His time once and for all. And this is exactly where Peter goes. If you turn over to chapter 4, turn there now, 417. 417. He says these very stark words, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This sifting, basically, to see whether or not people are true Christians. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The fact that God is sovereign over all of us is the truth that holds us firm. And because of that, Christians can always rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, even in persecution. He is Lord of all. Lord over every human institution and political party, whether red or blue. And no matter how much injustice a government may, might be known for, we are helped to remember at 1 Peter 1, 24, go ahead and look there and you'll find confidence if you tend towards despair. Look there, 1 Peter 1, 24. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but It is the will of the Lord, the Lord's word that lasts forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We are not called to slavishly submit to governing authorities. Should we seek to submit? Yes. With wisdom? Yes. Respectfully? Yes. Even encouragingly submit where possible. But God alone is worthy of absolute allegiance as King of Kings. That's why it says there in verse 17, right in the middle, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, honor the emperor. But Peter reminds us right in the middle, fear God. Like we read earlier in Psalm 96. And honoring God and fearing God and loving God is actually part of what God uses to save others all according to his will, right? Is when your friends and your family and those around you see you on mission for God, your loving Savior who has forgiven you, of your sin and taking you to himself 
that you would live for him and the fame of his great name. It is then that some may come to know Christ themselves and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would help us live on mission that we would be committed to proclaiming your excellencies as Savior and Lord and living according to your excellencies, holy unto your name. God, we pray that if we struggle with the fear of man, we pray, Lord, that you would help us confess it. And we know if we are aware of our own souls that we certainly fear man. So we pray that you would forgive us of these things. We confess that oftentimes we're worried far more about the fame of our great, great name as if there were any than the fame of your great name. We confess, Lord, that even though you provide boldness in the Spirit and the strength of Christ in the Spirit, we shrink in fear because we want to be praised or liked or simply not rejected. But Lord, we pray that we would be so captivated with the glory of your name that we would want you to be praised. So convict us, Lord, where we would rather aim for our own glory than your own glory, where we would rather be comfortable for a moment there right in front of the eyes of all the other people. We pray, God, that you would help us see that we should care about their eternal souls that they would be accepted for, before you for eternity. Help us embrace, in fact, this discomfort for the sake of your great name and for the salvation of eternal souls. And Lord, we pray here that as you call us to be subject for your sake to every human institution, Lord, we pray that we would always remember that you are King, Lord of the conscience. You have spoken. We pray, Lord, that even where we might fear, fear loss of reputation or loss of privileges or loss of freedoms, Lord, we pray that we would know that you will come to judge and that we will spend an eternity enjoying your freedoms and the same glory that you possess as we are your people in your kingdom. These things we pray in your name. Amen.